0: Cinemakers. This is episode 36, Memento, directed by Christopher Nolan. I'm Mike Manzi. Let
1: me uh, check my tattoos here. I'm Chris Outcast, And I'm Joey Lewandowski, and we are here for a masterpiece of a film that all three of us I saw gave five stars in Letterboxd. Memento, a very, very bleak, depressing movie. Like, the more you think about it, the sadder it gets.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I remember saying last episode, like, a lot of his movies didn't leave me warm and fuzzy inside, but For some strange reason, this one does like as dark as it is. I was surprised to feel sort of like, all right, coming out the other side. But yeah, way better than I remembered.
2: I mean, the movie does such a good job of putting you in Lenny's like mindset and identifying with his broke brains that you just kind of get on the, yeah, ignorance is bliss train with him the entire time. Once you kind of see the beginning and the end of the the film itself not the story we'll talk about that
1: what's interesting about re-watching this movie like a decade after I first saw it was that I remember that carrie Ann Moss was not good but I thought she was more bad than she actually was like she's mm. just kind of like a piece of shit like she's not nefarious she's just a bad person mm. but she's not like orchestrating anything like Joey Pants is like the actual orchestrator I mean he's like top so like the movie you think he's bad but then you're like oh no he's good but actually he is bad there's a weird memory thing that as you're watching it it sort of like plays with you like if you don't remember what the actual twists and turns and everything were and i don't think any of us had seen it in a long enough time to maybe remember everything about it it's very interesting how this movie not only plays with lenny's memory but also yours as well
2: yeah, it has to. And yeah, you know, I saw an interview with him uh, with Nolan, where he's talking about the structure of the film. And he talks about how the color stuff is supposed to be the subjective. And the way that the film conditions you early on makes it so that you're identifying with Lenny. You're almost in his head throughout that stuff uh, because you are constantly trying to catch up with the imperfect information that he has. Whereas the black and white is more of the objective and it's running linear and it's more fact-based and it's more third person and you can, quote unquote, trust it more. And the film just, yeah, like it does such a fantastic job of not only making you identify with Lenny, but feel like you are going on that ride too. And maybe we'll talk, we should probably talk about acting a little bit down the line or else we're just going to keep doubling back on ourselves. His acting is so much better than I remember. Uh, Maybe because when I was initially watching this movie as a child, I think I was looking for the puzzle, quote unquote, and trying to solve things versus just letting how much of like an emotional roller coaster this movie is wash over me. And so much of that is the performances, especially from him. Just there's no wasted facial motion in any scene from Guy Pierce. it's such a better and more incredible performance than I ever could have remembered.
0: Yeah, I totally, totally agree. I guess I was a little older than you guys when I first saw this, and I was getting into the sort of more obscure, like, indie stuff at the time, and this stood out, like, at the time, I was like, wow i'm gonna i I think like this is something different and something special and i I think like the first two times I saw it, I was just really caught up on you know like the structure and everything. The rest of it didn't really sink in as much, but watching it this time, like all these other things about this movie came to light, and like why I think it's even better than I remembered it being and Guy Pierce is so great in it, and the character is so unusual, just the idea of this guy who can't retain any new memories like. You know, basically every 15 minutes, he's like a blank slate again. He he only knows what he knows up until this accident that he had, this breaking and entering thing, which is kind of like a, a following callback I got. Like, there's a and e Basically, like I just felt the emotional weight of this this time too, and that added like an extra level of rewatchability to it. I feel like once you watch it and you know about how it's told in reverse and the structure, and you're inside the character's head, and like you can kind of get a handle on that. I think like maybe the second
1: or third time you watch it, like for me at least, all this other stuff started coming to the surface. I think unusual is a good word for this movie because I wrote on my Letterbox review, this movie does not remind me of movies. Like, this reminds hmm. me of a game, like a, a video game sort of in general, but specifically the game Gone Home, which is a... What do they call it, Chris? Like a walking simulator?
2: Yeah, walking simulator is, is one of the things that they call it. In Gone Home, at least you have to, like, you do some stuff, so maybe it's more of like um What do they call those? Like a visual novel? And, and that is one of my favorite games.
1: It's like an interactive walking simulator. Mike, have you played Gone Home? I have not played it, no. So Gone Home is like a three-hour game. It's a very short game, and you are just a college-aged girl who goes to her parents' house, I think around Thanksgiving one time, and nobody's home, and you're just walking around the house just sort of remembering, like the characters remember things, but you're learning things about the family, and eventually you find out that like there was this fight, and you find out what the fight was over, but like you're piecing together this narrative, and you're sort of able to explore on your own. It's a game, but it's not like a game, and it's great, Mm -hmm. like it's so good, but there's a specific type of person who doesn't think these are video games because you're not shooting wow. things or you you'd sort of like do it in your own time, do it in your own pace. You can beat the game, I think, in, like, eight minutes if you do it right, or maybe three minutes? It's, like, you can beat it really, really quick. This, it startled me how unusual this felt. This reminded me of, like, a completely different medium in that you are, along with him, learning things, but there's, like, red herrings. Mm -hmm. We find out later that some of the red herrings are, like, intentionally so. Like, he's intentionally misdirecting himself in the past, and he's being lied to by just about everybody around him. I mean, even, like, sort of relative Innocently, like by Burt the Motel Guy, or by mm-hmm. Carrie Ann Moss, more sinister, or even more sinister, by Joey Pants everybody's lying to him and you sort of hope that some things are true but they're not necessarily and i think what's really interesting about this is the way that it all works together and you don't know what's true and the story is fascinating but it's also like what we've been talking about like the performances and like how he's not sure and just like the way that there's so much going on that like it's such a smart performance a smart role a smart character especially considering he knows nothing really
0: yeah, it's really cool. It's such a great take on the detective story, really. And I was watching an interview on my DVD with Nolan and uh, I think with Elvis Mitchell and he's talked about how he wanted to make a noir but he kind of wanted to break from all the noir conventions and you know we talked about with Following how that was sort of pretty much a straightforward story that he told out of order to make it seem kind of new or fresh and I feel like he's doing a lot of that here too but in a way I also feel like in more of a way he's adding to noir in general because there's all these things in noir, classic noir about like people with amnesia and stuff like that and and this isn't quite that and he's found out a way to use his own method to tell these like conventional stories that he loves and i think for like a a new audience you know like that's really good like that's a way to sort of grab somebody and say look like noir can be this also and it works really well as like a new thing too
2: bringing up following is i think important um even though we kind of you know see our episode on that but This is such an obvious, like, leveling up of following. I said in the following episode, that movie had to happen so that his later movies could happen. And this is just the clearest example of just so many ideas. You know, this this guy who really does not belong in the criminal kind of underworld, getting sucked in and being manipulated by multiple forces at the same time. Just one of many aspects of following that is brought along and made into a a much more superior movie. Um, You mentioned the uh, distorted kind of timeline or the nonlinear storytelling, I guess I should say. And yeah, the same thing, except here now we have a reason for that instead of just kind of of have it to mess with the audience, to withhold information. Here we have a narrative reason for it. And, you know, for so many reasons it works so much better and it's such a more complete, more fulfilling movie.
1: Yeah. Right. 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 You know what I think is really funny. Before, but just as as a quick side note, Mike is that when we were doing Soderbergh, like every third movie of Soderbergh's, we read trivia that like, oh, he wanted to shoot this movie in black and white, and the studio was like, no, you can't do that. But here we are, two movies in the Christopher Nolan, and like one and a half of these two movies are in black and white. So I like that it's just like this complete inverse of Soderbergh. But I think that even echoes your point, Chris, is that like the first movie he made was black and white because it sort of had to be, and here it's black and white because it's it's something we were talking about I think last week when we were talking about following, it's that, like, he uses the colors to differentiate between, like, he's not only using the different time periods smartly for a reason within the story, but he's also differentiating between them in smart ways, and also the fact that he's able to converge the two together in what's, like, a super cool transition. You know, this is haughty praise, but, you know, they always talk about how in 2001 Space Odyssey, like, the monkey throws the bone up, and then all of a sudden becomes a spaceship. Like, this is not that, but this sort of merging or this, like, transition is super cool, and I forgot all about it when like the polaroid goes from black and white to color you're like oh now we're here and we're like we're all caught up like we are fully narratively here and it's just so interesting how in two years or two and a half years however long it took him to sort of shoot an edit following to get to here how just like how much more confident and how much more purposeful and how much more meaningful he is as a director
0: yeah, I had totally forgotten when it goes from black and white to color, but the, yeah, just the idea that it's the Polaroid developing as the color comes into play, like, that is just great. I, I don't know, I do feel like that is a masterstroke. But yeah, I totally agree with you guys. Like, just that he was able to say, okay, I want to use these techniques and find narrative purpose for it. Like, that is just the most you can hope for, and I'm just so glad, like, he's there so early is uh, is pretty crazy. Like, you know, Soderbergh pulled off some magic really early in his career too, And so it's just really cool to see that Nolan is really on his game two movies in and he's even sort of showing some projection into where he's going to go in the future too like he introduces an idea in this movie that I feel becomes like really big throughout his career is that the main character being motivated by a dead wife oh, that, yes. that's going to yes. come back like prestige, inception, more and more like that it's too. It's in- so. Inception,
1: Interstellar, and The Prestige. So this is four of his ten movies are all about seeking revenge for a dead wife just like you know it's just it's everywhere.
0: And and it's powerful, too. I feel like that's strong motivation. I, 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 It's
1: funny that he has so much to explore in there. And I just want to say quickly is that I was looking up because his wife is like super cute. And I was like, I don't know what she's from. And she's like, she doesn't have a ton of credits, but she's been in 300 episodes of CSI. Like, oh, Whoa. that's why I don't know who she is, because I just don't watch that show. But like, that is that's her. Like, she's like one of the five or six people who've been on that show the most out of everybody. So uh, she she's doing all right for herself.
2: Yeah, Georgia Fox, she was a she was a key player on that show. She was one of the ones who just kind of Found her bread and butter, and, and stuck that out for as as long as possible. I did remember that transition from black and white to color. Uh, what I did not remember was the literal opening of um, the backwards storytelling, where the gun goes off and it you, it shows that in reverse to really explicitly say, "Hey, we're going backwards this way." And I did not remember that at all. The glass is flying off, the casing, him bringing the gun back up to his hand. Incredible, just incredible use of that technique, and again, that's something that in a lot of movies opening up with that you would think that you know i could just see like a post tarantino kind of um boondock saints like nu- lucky number Eleven kind of movie like opening with a reverse kill like that just to be fucking cool but this again it has narrative weight and on a rewatch you see that and it's just like oh fuck it all clicks and i um i do think this is a movie that deserves multiple watches but it's not one that requires it because the the puzzle isn't the main kind of idea it's rewarding but it's not necessary and i I think that's an important distinction to make between why something like this works where something like Primer does not.
1: Wait, you don't think Primer works?
2: I don't think Primer works because I don't think the point of a movie should be to have to map it out with, like, a 10-page PDF.
1: But I feel like that's like that's the point of it, whether that I mean, that's a different topic altogether. Okay.
2: Yeah, well, that's—make a video game out of that. Like, that's a different medium, then. I just don't feel anything when I watch Primer, so I don't— I mean, I, I'll, just make, I'll just fucking put a puzzle together if I want, if I want that, you know? Give me a thousand-piece puzzle. This movie makes me feel something. Whereas I couldn't even tell you what a character does in Primer other than go back in time, and I've seen that movie like three times.
0: One thing I really love about the beginning of this movie, like, you know, aside from just the the backwards, the reverse stuff is uh, at least the first time I watched it, I remember the shock of it, just the idea of it opening with a guy getting shot in the head, begging for his life and everything. I was like, how am I going to be on the side of this main character at all throughout this movie if I know, like in the opening, that he killed some guy and like seemingly under false pretense or something for the wrong reasons and stuff. And so this time around, I was kind of blown away just... By the way Nolan was like, Well, you just, you know, wait until you get the whole story. You know, sort of reserve judgment, maybe. Or or at times throughout it's like he gets me on his side and then I'm off his side again and then I'm back on his side. Like, especially when he starts like, even though she instigates it when he beats up like Carrie Ann Moss. I'm like, okay, there's a very dark side to this character that we haven't entirely seen and we may not get until the end or whatever. But like still at the end, I'm with this guy. Like, it sounds crazy, but like, because he's killed like two or three people, like I'm just happy for. Him. Like, and that, for me, it was like, wow, movie did its job. I wasn't so much, like, put, trying to put a puzzle together this time. It was just, like, an emotional journey for me. Like, I really
1: just felt for this guy and was on his side. Are you happy for him, or are you, like, just satisfied that sort of everybody got their comeuppance? Because I feel like ha- being happy for this guy, like, things aren't going to get better for him.
0: No, but like he said, he'll know when he knows, you know? And I end the movie believing that he realizes that he's got the, if not the right guy, that he... Can can stop, like that he has gotten to a point where it's enough and he has closure and that he can rest easy. Because one of the last shots we see is like him picturing in his mind, in bed with his wife with the final tattoo, you did it, over his heart, yep. over his chest. Yep. And so for me, I just took that for what it was and I was like, yeah, I, I believe on some level he will be happy.
2: I just realized that this movie is like the gritty adaptation of the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Like. I'm kind of happy for him at the end and something again from an interview I was watching they didn't want to cast Joey pants because they felt that it would be too obvious that he was the antagonist early on and as I was watching that I was like I don't see him in any way as the antagonist of this movie.
1: Well, he's supposed to because from the beginning, like the first thing we know about him is don't believe his lies. The movie sets him up to be the bad guy. Like whether or not we know that's true, if you're just taking this movie at face value, I think he's set up from the beginning as the like. I feel like if you just follow this movie and don't like think more, this movie is in a way Leonard trying to figure out, like trying to put together enough pieces as to why he should be allowed to kill Joey Pants. Like that, I think is a way to read this because. Like, it feels like from the very beginning he is the antagonist, he is the bad guy, and it just feels like I need to have enough proof through mm-hmm. tattoos, through whatever, through police documents, through police records of the car or whatever, TMV records, that like once I know that he's a bad guy, then I can kill him. So I think he's set up as the antagonist. I sort of disagree there.
2: He is set up as it, but ultimately, like, it, when you're defining what an antagonist is, it is the person who is trying to prevent the protagonist from achieving his goal and really the ultimate twist of this movie is that the antagonist of this movie is the same person as the protagonist in the end he sets up the entire the inciting incident is created by Lenny he allows this, what assuming is this ultimate murder of mon- of many that has existed. He sets this up to be the end game, essentially. And the, the real question is, kind of, I think, something that the movie is also asking, and I, I imagine you know, Reddit's have, have latched onto is is he doing this on purpose because he is aware of this um, this game that has been going on? Has he conditioned himself to know what he is doing? Um, but in the end, I think that matters less than the fact that this movie is asking you to think about your own memory and think about what makes us happy and how we ignore certain things to give ourselves you know a better sense of calm and that is really what occurs and that's why that last 10 minutes or so it to me is less tragic and more that's the more the most horrifying part of the movie other than maybe Carrie Ann Moss's awesome little manipulation monologue
0: That's true. I also feel like on a level, there's lots of bad people in this movie. Like, everybody's pretty manipulative. Like, that's another thing carried over from following is, like, there's this guy making someone else do what he wants, basically, without him realizing it. Throughout the movie, I'm less and less on Joey Pant's side, like, because I think, again, with that opening, with him begging for his life and saying, you got like the wrong guy or whatever, and then him genuinely seeming like a friendly dude. And then as the movie goes on, as we're going back in time, too, which is strange, he gets more and more on my nerves. And up until the point where I even think at the end, I expect... Leonard to shoot him. I expect that scene to like happen almost to a degree, but it doesn't because it happened later, which was already. Oh my god. This movie makes your mind backwards, but it just does a really good job of playing with you, you know? Like, it doesn't go overboard, either. It doesn't, it's not really hiding any cards, I feel like. It's showing all the cards. It's just, they're shuffled at the moment, and by the end of the movie, you could see, like, the entire hand and what it is,
1: and you can read it. You know what this movie really reminded me of this time, and I honestly don't know if I'd seen it when I saw the movie the first time. I got crazy Fight Club vibes here, because, number one, Guy Pearce is kind of pulling a bleach blonde, Brad Pitt shirtless. Even, like, that picture of him shirtless pointing to his chest, where the I've done a tattoo is going to be like, looks like he could be Brad Pitt sort of getting ready for a fight in that movie. The fact that there is the flashbacks where we see in that split second, you know, Sammy become Leonard, like sort of gets spliced in there. The fact that it's like an unreliable narrator, the fact that it just feels to me and not a copy of a copy of a copy, like an imitation of Fight Club in any way, it's a different movie entirely. But it just felt very similar in certain ways to that movie. And I feel like while that movie is sort of like Like a bro-y smart movie, a movie that I really, really love. So I don't want—I don't—I don't don't sound like I'm putting it down. This is like a smart, smart movie. You know what I mean? Like they're not like similar, but I was getting very heavy comparisons between the two.
0: Well, I think some of that might just be inherent to the type of storytelling, like even just the characters in general. Both both movies deal with memory and memory loss. Right, exactly. And, yeah, and that's that what I'm saying. I mean, yeah. like, and
1: they're a year yeah, apart. Yeah. You
0: know what I mean? Like they. Oh, like, I didn't. I didn't realize they're that close. Fight Club '99.
1: This is 2000. Like they're the no, same. Crazy.
0: Yeah, and and they're drastically different too. Right. Yeah. No, that's interesting though. How they can both sort of be playing with the same ideas and themes on a certain level, and yet be very, very
1: different types of movies. Both movies are lying to you the entire time, and you don't realize that until the end. Like, here, I think it's, you, you sort of, yeah. like, you might, you sort of get a hint in both that you're being lied to. I think in Fight Club, you find out earlier, then there's the whole, like, how do we deal with this now? And in this one, when you sort of find it out, it is like that last 10 minutes, and then you're like, oh, that's how we deal with it, just because he's free now. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, they both use that very well to do different things. Like, I don't, I feel like they make different points using the same sort yeah, of techniques. Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
1: And the other big action movie, or the big other sort of bro movie of 99, another movie that I absolutely love, of course, is The Matrix. And we talked about Joey Pants before, but what happened was a producer, Jennifer Todd, producer on this film, was so impressed by Carrie Ann Moss as Trinity that she was like, you should hire her for this movie. And then Mary McCormick lobbied for the role, but it went to Carrie Ann Moss, obviously. And the one she was on board, she's who suggested that they should hire Joey Pants. Oh, because they, they, I guess they like, just like hit it off on the set of the Matrix. And so she brought him in. So like, there's only like there's really only three people in this movie of significance. I mean, there are other people. Mm-hmm. We have Stephen Tobolowsky in here is great. We've got Count yep. Keith Rennie, who's good. But like it's just the three of them. And so like, the fact that like one of those directly led to the other, it's just uh, pretty cool.
0: And the guy who runs the motel or who's behind the counter, he's going to come back in Batman Begins. He plays a crooked cop in
1: that. Oh, so right. Yeah. yeah. He plays a crooked motel manager.
2: Yeah, he shows up in scumbag roles here and there. He's he's pretty good at that. I always loved Tobolowski, Probably my favorite put-upon character actor other than Leland Orser. And another big difference between watching this then versus now and just the emotional wave that hits you. I never really gave a shit about the Sammy Jenkins stuff as a dumbass 14-year-old because, you know, I just wanted to get to the next point where, like, oh, mystery is revealed, duh, duh. But holy fuck, man, the Sammy Jenkins stuff is so utterly crushing and... Just the little things, the little direction in this movie. And I think from a, I want to add from a visual standpoint, maybe the weakest thing about this is how it's directed visually. Like, there's not that much, it's very flat, the shots aren't that interesting, but it's fine, it works. But how he directed the actors, just the little facial features, the little facial tics on everybody, just the faces as he's giving that, like, second and third shot of insulin... I never would have thought *Memento* was a movie to like that would like get me a little bit choked up, but that seeing that so many years later, it just it fucking wrecked me.
0: I almost teared up this time to watching it this time, Chris. So like I'm right there with you, man. I almost feel like that little segment is like some of the best stuff in this movie this time around. It's just so great.
1: It's brutal. Yeah. But is any of that real? Does it matter? No, it doesn't matter. But I'm just wondering for from a narrative standpoint.
0: I took it to be. I I always have. Like I've heard arguments that it's not that it's a story that he tells himself because of he's condition Like it's a part of his own conditioning was to tell himself that story. But I always believed it because he says he only remembers stuff up into the incident and he remembers it so in such great detail. You know, like it was his first case and all that kind of thing. Another kind of fight club uh, similarity there, right? Where he's a claims investment guy. (laughs) But I always thought that that it actually happened. But I'm also with Chris. Like, ultimately, I don't think it really matters.
2: Narratively, I don't know if, to me, the possibility isn't it happened or it didn't happen. The possibility is Sammy Jenkins exists or Lenny did that to his wife. I think it happened 100%. It's just who was it happening to?
1: Well, because... Because Leonard didn't kill his wife, like, put his wife into a coma. I don't believe
0: he did either. I think that was some more of Joey Pants's lies that you don't want to believe. Gotcha. Because like cause Leonard's like, my wife wasn't diabetic and then you see him like pinch her and everything you see that twice you see him once he's injecting her and once he's pinching her but the second time he's like sure he's like my wife's not diabetic and so that's when he knew that the dude was lying
1: well there's also there's a there was a reading there's when he's watching tv in carrion moss's apartment or house or whatever she's in there's Something that either on the TV or there's like a painting behind him or something of a needle. And there's a reading of that scene that implies that she actually was diabetic, that this oh, was... so that's like a
0: Leonard sort yes. of moment where Leonard was watching TV and stuff. Uh, Interesting. Yes.
1: Interesting. One other Fight Club comparison that we can sort of move on from that. One of the original people considered for the Guy Pierce role was Brad Pitt. He wanted to play Leonard, but had to pass due to other commitments, and then once he had to pass, Christopher Nolan realized, and I'm not sure how this works, but he said that once Brad Pitt passed, he didn't want to have like an A-list actor, because having a lesser-known lead would somehow allow for, oh, allow for the film's budget to be more evenly distributed. Okay, that makes more sense. I misread that before. So then he almost cast Aaron Eckhart, who obviously would go on to play in Dark Knight, so he's almost here. Charlie Sheen was at once considered for this role. Whoa. Thomas Jane. Christopher Nolan's first choice for this, which I don't like, is Alec Baldwin. He really wanted Alec Baldwin Mm. for this role. I really
0: love. Guy Pierce, I think that he's got a kind of noir connection with L.A. Confidential, which was the only thing I really knew him from at this point. He would go on to seek justice and make the hungry rabbit jump. Absolutely, cage way down the line. But I always thought he would have made a great Riddler in the Nolan Dark Knight trilogy, but that never came to fruition at all. But I, I still, watching this now, I was like, wow, I would really like to see him go sort of like off the chain and go big and stuff. Because what he's doing here is really great and subtle, but it's like a very particular performance and it's amazing, and it looks extremely difficult. Yeah, I always just thought he would have been cool Riddler.
2: I think I saw LA Confidential after this, but I've always been a fan of Guy Pearson I always wish he broke out a little bit more. He always kind of maintained that low indie level, and I think he could have been bigger. And yeah, I'm surprised he hasn't come back considering how much Nolan loves recasting people. I I love the idea of him in the Batman universe. If we're going to insert him into a role that already exists, I think he could have done Killian Murphy's job as Scarecrow just as well as he did. But yeah, I it's it's kind of surprising now that I think about it that he's never showed up again in uh in any of these.
0: He made it into uh Iron Man 3 eventually, Breathe Fire and that. So I guess he he did end up going pretty big. <laughs> and uh Prometheus
1: and I was looking at his letterbox, and I love him in Lockout. Lockout is great, and I also love him in—I don't love him in necessarily, but he's in that movie Results, which I don't know if either of you saw from a couple of years ago. It's him and Kobe Smolders and Kevin Corrigan. and like that's a really good movie. So like he's still around. He's just not like a movie star, movie star. He's just a great actor.
0: I remember the the proposition is really great. It's like this Aussie western, and then Time Machine. He was in like that big ass not-so-great remake of The Time Machine. He was in
1: The Rover, which was, like, the first time I was like, holy shit, Robert Pattinson can act.
2: You know what the first thing I saw him in was, and I didn't even realize it until years later? Ravenous. Ravenous is fantastic.
1: Oh, you love Ravenous.
2: Yeah, Ravenous is great, and he's great in that. Also, he's good in... He's extremely different in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Like, you would never know that's him. Oh, yeah, he's the brother in the king's speech, and he's the old man in Prometheus. Yeah, he's around. He's almost a little bit become too much of a... Of that guy, though.
1: Like, I feel like most people. I don't remember he's in these movies. Like, I don't think you guys do. Either. Like, it's just like he's in so many things that we've seen. He just sort of is good in things. But like, I don't know why. Like, why isn't he bigger? I guess like, I mean, it's particular, but he's so good in this.
2: Yeah, it's 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 crazy that he's not uh, more of a leading man. Honestly,
0: you know what aspect I really liked uh, in this movie, and I think and this is just another strength of, of Guy Pierce too. There's like these really. Small unexpected moments of comedy, like uh, they just come at just the right moment, and most of them are his voiceover. Like I just love the use of voiceover, which he in apparently improv most of for what's oh, worth. Oh no, yeah, that's that's impressive. Um, because also like you know, voiceover is very tricky, and Nolan again had found a way to like incorporate it. Perfectly, You know, because it's this guy like literally trying to figure out what just happened, like what is going on and stuff. And so when he's like reaching into the dresser at the motel and he's like nothing in here but a Gideon Bible and then you see the gun also and he's like, oh, that's interesting. I, I really think that that worked and helped bring sort of just like an unexpected sort of levity to it like you just get an insight to his personality a little deeper because he talks about how not having a memory like this can always make you angry or feel guilty and you just have no idea why but he just seems to fucking like roll with it so well some of the time and just like fly by the seat of his pants and i guess that's how he's conditioned himself just to be living on instinct like that but yeah i I just appreciated those sort of like lighter moments i definitely was not expecting
2: i've always felt that voiceover was Really well done. I'm shocked to learn that that is was largely improv. And I swear to you, even though I forgot chunks of this movie because it's been so long, every time I'm in a hotel, that exact thing that you said, I always, anytime I open that drawer, I always hear him saying Gideon Bible uh, in my head. It's just something that, that stuck with me throughout um, I first, I first seen this movie. And it's so important. And it's interesting. I think it's good. Considering I think they're trying to put us in Lenny's position in the color stuff.
1: Because the black and white stuff is all the phone call stuff. What's interesting about the voiceover, or the semi-voiceover in this, is that in following, there was sort of voiceover, but it was mostly, I don't know if we talked about this, but it was mostly the plot device of the guy confessing to the police. So it was voiceover, but it was also happening on, so like we saw it happening on screen. And so here it's the same thing. Like it's, you know, Guy Pierce talking to whoever he's talking, probably Joey Pants on the phone. And we also see it as voiceover when we go back to the Sammy Jenkins stuff. But like Nolan, now in two movies in a row, has used voiceover or like what isn't actually voiceover, but using it as voiceover. And, you know, Mike, we've talked about on so many different things, like how voiceover almost never works. And like, I think in both these movies, whether it's pure voiceover or or, like, semi-voiceover. Like, it works and helps the story.
2: Yes, the voiceover being in the color part. So what Mike said, adding to the, the comedy, another segment that always stayed with me, another line that always stayed with me, was when um, he's running, and he just blanks in, he just blacks into the, the memory, and he's like, running oh, chasing this guy. Nope, he's chasing me. Like, that's, that's just such a good... There's not a ton of, like, outright laughs in this movie, but I always say that you do need a little bit of levity, even if it's black comedy, to break up those moments. And yeah, this does have a couple of good... I never I never did notice that a lot of that does come from his voiceover, because he's not really a funny guy and, in fact, Joey Pants even says, like, whoa, did you lose your sense of humor with your memory? Um, Like, he never does any joking stuff other than the casual, like, oh, uh, yeah, no one's perfect. But yeah, I need to pay more attention to that voiceover next time I watch it, because that is the main source of levity
1: you know in this regard you know who probably could have done a really good job here. not that i want to recast guy pierce keanu probably could have done this really well oh yeah great call Yeah, for the the whole sort of blank slate. Yeah, the Keanu Club, the Golden Hot Dog Award winner for Best (laughs) Archetypal Role, yeah.
0: I love that moment that uh, you just mentioned too, Chris, when he's running, because I just feel like that small little thing gives insight into his character too, because it's like, okay, he basically describes it as waking up every time he's like rebooted, and so his first instinct is to chase the guy, you know? like He's proactive, Like, like he's this driven thing, he's almost like a weird sort of Terminator that's malfunctioned or something like that like I just love that about him too and and then there's that moment where he wakes up in the bathroom sitting on a toilet holding a bottle of uh, Jim Beam I think I don't feel Um, drunk yeah and then you find out later that earlier he took that as a weapon and stuff so it's just really cool how these aren't just necessarily there for one reason they could also be there for multiple reasons to to read into him a little deeper if you wanted to
2: It's interesting that the producer wanted to cast Carrie Ann Moss based on The Matrix. I'm guessing it's just because she liked The Matrix because there's nothing to me in Trinity that says this actress has the same traits as Natalie or could portray them just from that role as Trinity.
1: Well, so, I mean, I'm intimately familiar with The Matrix, and I'm, I'm trying to sort of defend that, but Trinity, for the, most of the first movie, knows things Keanu does not, knows that she's in love with him, knows that he, you know, she's going to fall in love with the one. And I think that that, if you look at it like that, if you look at it like she's holding a secret over the main guy, I think that could be, I mean, it's the complete opposite, like, you know, she's not using it to manipulate him, like, Natalie is here, but... I think that there's sort of like a knowing quality to Trinity acting across from a blank slate that could pretty directly, you know, correlate here.
2: Okay, I buy that. As good as her freak out scene is and her, like, manipulation scene, I really, again, going back to this the subtle facial stuff in this movie... I love when he goes into her bar, and like she is a—we're not aware—but she is aware that he is wearing her boyfriend's clothes and driving his car, and just like the faces that she is making at him are absolutely fantastic. And she is, as someone who has never really—you know—I'm not—I'm not as big on the Matrix as you, and I, I've never um, really. I guess. I guess the next time I'm gonna see Carrie Ann Moss in this way is in um, Daredevil or Jessica Jones. She plays a kind of a similar character in that as well, and I think she succeeds really well. I think she's a better. Maybe she's actually a better antagonist than a protagonist. I think she she works for me better as a as a bad
0: guy. Yeah, I think the one thing the parallel that I see is that just she has good presence like in the matrix she's like a strong presence and in this one like her character is definitely trying to hold her own and being manipulative and controlling and all that stuff but she's definitely a tough person who later shows some vulnerability afterwards but like yeah just in the short amount of time we get to know her character in this I like her by the end even though that she has like pulled a really mean trick on our guy because ultimately he murdered her boyfriend which we come to find out she gets him to beat up Dodd and get him to like skip town and then she gives him ultimately gives him the information that in his mind confirms that Joey Pants is the John G he's looking for so like I said earlier once you get all the facts and again you know facts are truth memory is unreliable right like that's a thing here too so like once you get all the facts like my memory sort of forgets some of the bad things that or the extent of which some of these characters have gone to the bad side in this movie and I think that's just Nolan manipulating my emotions really well and yeah and I'm not Frustrated by that either, and I feel like some sometimes in movies that do try to orchestrate your emotions, like it can be very frustrating because you're aware of it. And he's masked it through his like visual techniques and and other trickery too. So I don't know. It's just like a really sneaky balance um, that he has in this movie.
1: You know, one weird little thing that has nothing to do with anything we're talking about, but you know, Chris, you were just on as we were recording this episode not too long ago. We recorded our Hancock episode, and in both that movie and this movie, we've got Thomas Lennon. As a guy with no comedy at all, just like a straight-up doctor in this movie,
0: he comes back as Batman's doctor in The
1: Dark Knight Rises. Like
0: what? Okay, so
2: I noted that that guy looked a lot like Thomas Lennon. Yep. Yeah, that
1: without the mustache, you know, it's it's mustache blindness is pretty tough to recognize him. I think. Yeah.
2: Seeing Tobo just repeatedly flip him off was. I mean, hey, you might say there's no comedy there, but I think that's high comedy.
1: Did you guys catch the Batman logo
0: in this movie by any chance? Yes. No, I missed it this time.
1: Yeah, across the street when when he's pulling away from the guy chasing him, there's a Batman and Superman logo like on a on a store across the street. Oh yes, it looks yes. like it's like a comic book store yep. or something. Going back to Tobolowski for a second, this is a bit of a tangent, but the reason he was cast in this movie is because he apparently had had amnesia, and that Nolan wasn't sure if he had was right for the part or not. But he's like, no, I know, like I know how to play this. I've had this. But what's super weird is that he was just on one of my favorite, if not my favorite podcast, Never Not Funny, and he was talking about how. Apparently in real life, I still, I'm not sure if this was a story or if it was true. Like it definitely happened, but whether he was like telling the truth or lying, but for a while he would say that he could hear tones in people and what those tones would be is like, it was sort of like, he could sort of, it was kind of like ESP. Like he could sort of tell things about your past to like, like a medium, kind of like a medium. Yeah. And huh. it was super weird. And well. That's stupid. What was the <laughs> band that? So actually, this is there's two things here. I realize I'm all over the place, but it's sort of tie-in. What was the band that Radiohead got their name from? Talking Heads, right? No, okay, yes, it was t- Talking Heads' album True Stories had a song called Radiohead. So okay, so Talking Heads apparently became friends with Stephen Tobolowsky because they were just like in the Hollywood area or whatever. And Stephen Tobolowsky's like pool was the pool that they used in the music video for the song Radiohead that they would then go on to that Radiohead like the band that was whatever they were called before they were Radiohead. Loved that song love that name or whatever and then change the name but also to even weirdly tie it in like all these like weird tangents that make no sense and are completely disconnected yeah Christopher Nolan wanted to use Paranoid Android as the closing credits song but it was gonna be too expensive he's like I can't do that but it's just weird how like in my brain there's all these like tangential things that really make no sense and aren't even necessarily worth mentioning on a podcast and then we have you know Chris Nico over on Now and Again making fun of me for loving Radiohead and here it is tying in in multiple ways Radiohead and Memento. I don't
0: know if I believe that Stephen Tobolowsky can see or feel or hear tones or whatever that is. It was weird. The story was weird. But I will say he is a great storyteller. Uh, Just quickly like he has a movie called Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party where he's just telling stories at his birthday with his like famous friends and then he has like a bit of I think it's still going on. He had a podcast for a pretty long time where he just yeah like every episode would just be a story from his life. Yeah he's a really good storyteller. I like that guy. If he can see my tones or not, I don't.
1: Yes, hear hear your tones. It was it was. Hear oral. my tones. Yeah. I have a question for you guys. Do you think could this movie still be made today in an era of cell phones and smartphones?
0: I was thinking kind of about that because the Polaroid, you know, the uh, the Polaroid yes. camera in this way it doesn't exist like this anymore either.
1: And there's such the pivotal moment where Carrie and Moss has that, like Chris was saying, the manipulative monologue. We see her take all the pens, put them in the bag, and be like. I'm gonna fuck with you. Like your dumb wife's like, you know, sucked one too many diseased dicks, gave you the short term memory loss, like he's just like saying the most vile, hateful, spiteful stuff, and like all he wants is a pen. If he has a smartphone, he just takes it out and just writes it down. You know what I mean? So like you could still (laughs) or dictate.
2: Guess the answer is no.
1: I don't know. I mean it would be a
0: different movie because he talks about how he doesn't like talking on the phone, so that could be an excuse maybe not to own a
1: smartphone. I guess. That would make sense.
2: So I have a question for you guys, and I think I was talking about you know, the emotional difference between watching it then and now. And other than just paying attention to the stuff that wasn't, you know, the mystery, I notice as I am older, my memory slips as well. I've never had a great short-term memory. And, you know, these days I would say there's maybe two or three times a day that I will walk into a room and just be like, why the fuck did I come in here? I feel like the older I get, the more that this movie becomes a horror movie. I feel like it's only going to get worse with time as well.
1: There's one moment that's really, really chilling to me that I don't remember it being that jarring is that when he's in the black and white and he's on the phone and he's itching, Mm. itching, itching that tattoo and he takes the peel off and says, never answer the phone. And he says, who is this? And then like they hang up immediately and like there's like the score like kicks in and I was like, holy shit, like, like what happened here? And like, that is sort of like a horror bent that like comes out of nowhere. And it's like, it's far more, I mean, a lot of this movie is like relatively sinister. But I feel like that moment is like super dark compared to the rest of the movie that's like just kind of dark. I'm a little bit Chris on the whole
0: losing my memory is, is scary also thing. I'm a little bit older and I notice like I've been straining in the past few months for references during episodes and stuff so like I don't know if it's coming on stronger now or whatever but I think about that from time to time like you know not like am I going to forget to eat or dress myself or anything like that but, but just being as quick as I used to be and, and things like yeah it makes me like just kind of sad.
1: Mike it's time for your shot.
2: I will say, as a, as a former teacher, I appreciate how much this movie appreciates a good pen. That Penny's got for the uh, the Polaroids versus the one he just scribbles. The one about Carrie Ann Moss, like I can tell, Lenny loves a good pen, and I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, uh, there is actually. I'm, I'm rewatching it now as we record. I have it on mute, and there's the one scene where he crosses off access to drugs and writes drug dealer and. In the word dealer, he writes the E's in two different ways. Like he curls the first and then does like, it just, it's such a weird thing for me to notice, I guess. But like, I feel like there's so many movies that like you have handwriting experts like say like, oh, this is what this means or whatever. And then here, just like, why are you like, because there's so much of him writing in this movie and, you know, mm-hmm. writing like that one time where he like sort of appeases Joey Pants by like writing in like lowercase yeah. and cursive, like, That's what I mean, oh, she's, she's lying or whatever and like crosses it out and then everything else is in that very methodical, you know, the inked capital letters and just so I'm, I think I was being hyper vigilant of the handwriting of the pens and whatever and he just does like ease in two very different ways and like I wonder, like I guess that's just how people write but it just sort of caught me off guard in like a thing that makes absolutely no, it has no meaning or no purpose but you know, I remembered it, I noticed it. Yeah,
0: I like that little bit where he like trust your own, like get to know your own handwriting or whatever, like he's conditioned himself to know his own handwriting and so when he uses a different script. Yeah, that's so clever. You know, that got me thinking, though, like, the the length of this movie that he just spends writing, it got me thinking, like, how much of this movie he spends just explaining his condition to people. Like, I wonder if you just, like, put all that together, how many minutes it would actually come out to be. I mean, I think it works, and it's kind of brilliant, like, as far as, like, screenwriting goes, because he's always got something some kind of jumping off point to start talking about something, you know, where he could be like, Oh, let me tell you about my condition. Da, da, da. Like it's just a great way for a character to get the ball rolling. And just also in man, for like a an hour and fifty-five minute movie, this thing just oh, yeah. did not feel that long either. I mean, I was just so engaged that it it kind of just flew by. So I I was even surprised looking at it. I was like, whoa, almost two hours. I never remembered this movie feeling two hours ever.
1: Well, because I think what's interesting about the pacing and what works really, really well is when we were doing, like, the Nick, and we were talking about how, like, every time you cut to a new character, you were like, oh, right, like, I want to be here. There's such a good job paid here, whether it's in the screenwriting or in the editing or what, that as soon as, like, we Get to a point where, we're like, okay, it cuts to the other storyline. You know, it cuts from the color to the black and white, or the black and white to the color. And there's also that like real comfortable familiarity of every scene ending on the line that we've already seen. So like, you know when it's gonna happen. Like, it's just so well structured. Even though, and I wrote it, I have it, I have it down here. There are hundred and thirteen time jumps which is, you know, I think following at like 31. So this is like far more convoluted than following, but it makes so much more sense just because of like the craftsmanship in the writing and the editing and the storytelling. Yeah, that's really great. I didn't realize that it jumped
0: around quite that much. Um, I actually thought the only thing I was thinking this time about was some of the time jumps are like really short. I guess it's intentional, but I kind of lose track of how long this movie takes place over, you know, the course of this movie. Like, what is the actual timeline? Is oh, I have is no idea. Harmed. What is it? Yeah, no clue. I don't know. And I think that that's fine. Like, I think that's, you know, <laughs> we're we're in Leonard's head. Yeah. Like, he really isn't sure. We'd have to really, he'd have to ask the tattoo artist, I guess. How many times have I been? How long have I been coming to you? I've
1: been doing some of my own, but how long have uh, has it been? Oh, and speaking of that tattoo artist, Emma's tattoo named after Christopher oh. Nolan's wife. So... Again, finding her way into the movie. One of my pet peeves is sort of how tattoo artists are portrayed in films. And I know that that's
0: an actor, but they're actually showing – it's actually pretty close. Like, that's the closest I think I've seen to how an actual tattoo is done uh, in a movie to real life. So they actually went as far as to, like, try and do, like, an entire line, like, show that being done. So I
1: applauded it. Cool. We talked about this on the last episode, about the very cool sort of medical folder, flip-folder, limited edition DVD that this first came in. I forgot that, like, to access special features on the DVD, you had to, like, answer questions... And just like we were saying last week that there is a, a linear version of following available, there's also a linear version of this, which I feel like would probably be a better experience than a linear following, but still just watch it this way. But to get to that, you need to answer like three or four questions right, and then you're not allowed to fast forward or rewind or skip chapters. So it's like this, like, we don't really want you to see it this way, but we can if you, if you really are dying to.
2: Well, in one of the interviews, the person straight up asks Nolan, "Like, could this be told chronologically?" And he says, "Yeah, it could, but it would be unwatchable. Um, it would just be a story about a guy being abused by the people around him." And I mean, I I agree. Everything, all of the all of the gut punches and all of the weight of the film would just be lost if if you did that. Um, I guess it's an interesting experiment. If you've seen this movie a bunch of times, just it just loses everything that the, the movie is bringing to the table.
0: Yeah, you know what that uh, made me think of after we recorded the last episode when we said that Joey like how Soderbergh released two cuts of Girlfriend Experience, like there's the theatrical cut and then his re-edit? Yep. Um, but that isn't a movie that relies heavily on structure like this one, you know? No. Like, that is a kind of just like it could be told out of order and everything like that. It, it so, essentially is, yeah. Yeah, so like the nature, I feel like the nature of this story needs to be told in this manner like this way and I don't have that copy I don't have this awesome sounding flipbook version of the DVD I think I probably still do
2: I think there's a there's a thing on that where you could like see all of his they showed all of his tattoos because you don't see a bunch of them in the movie like he's got way more than you actually see
0: the special features on mine have some of the tattoo art an interview, and then it has the website, which for 2,000 must have been crazy. But the, you could basically they have the web page that you would go to. It's memento backwards, so it's atnemem. It's just like a uh, a newspaper clipping, but you sort of go around it and click on certain words and then it expands and there's like little written notes and photographs and it's sort of like this investigation if you want to get deeper and see what's what else is in his pockets like all the little handwritten notes before he started tattooing himself and stuff that was pretty cool I explored that I thought that was interesting and I just kept thinking like man there's no way in the year 2000 like my web service would have ever been able to like handle this website (laughs) whatsoever and then the uh, the short story that this was based on by his brother wrote like it was an idea his brother had as a short story and that is on the DVD too but it's extremely hard to read on a television screen, so I would just recommend looking it up online.
1: So I'm putting in our chat right now, I don't think I have the DVD anymore. I don't know if it's somewhere else in a box somewhere if I just got rid of it, but it was like this like case file for Shelby Leonard, and there's the discs, and then there's this whole thing like it's like there's a bunch of different images, and it's like examine the set of objects below, select the objects from the set that were not shown to you previously. And it's like this really complicated memory test. And like if you got it wrong, like you couldn't advance through the menus. Like you could see the movie without doing work, but to get to anywhere else, it's just like it was like homework. It It was like crazy Uh, it was very unique i think especially for that time or for any time you know for any dvd it was super super cool in terms of the story like you're saying it's based on a short story by his brother the short story came out after the movie so it's an original screenplay even though it's an adaptation
0: so his brother jonathan wrote it right
1: they were going from like chicago
0: to los angeles they were moving to la because christopher Nolan was moving to la Yeah, and he was telling him this idea of this short story he wanted to write, and he's like may I write a screenplay while you're writing the short story? And he's like, sure, absolutely. And I think they actually came out like very close at the same like almost at the same time like when Memento was released in theaters the story was
1: published in a magazine from what I read on IMDb because like I feel like I'm just spewing trivia because like when we do bigger movies like this like like I can't I don't, I'm sort of worried how much trivia there's going to be for like The Dark Knight and stuff you know what I mean like it's going to be overwhelming probably but for bigger movies there's just a ton of trivia and like a lot of it's really interesting and apparently while they were driving from Chicago to LA like Jonathan went out with him because he just had time before school he, they like just talked through the entire story in the car right so they just sort of like verbally wrote the screenplay or wrote the story together and then i guess Christopher wrote the screenplay and Jonathan went and wrote the short story so uh kind of interesting and cool like that so when
2: when i'm on episodes of um bad movies with you guys like all of Keanu Club not all of this the stuff i was on
1: <laughs> oh yeah this is this is going to balance it out like you can't complain about being on bad movies anymore cuz like this is like oh, your average is now going to be good
2: yeah this is like when you're learning about like density in in elementary school and like they put a hundred like one gram things on a scale and then one hundred gram thing on a scale to balance it out like like we're balanced now we're we're okay but you know i when i was on those i always tried to find one good thing to say about a real piece of shit movie so i'm gonna say one or two things that i think don't work about this movie um which maybe drop it from 100 to a 98 still an a plus in my mind there's one edit that i wish that they cut a little bit early and it's just a minor thing but it seems so obvious when i watch it it's after carrie Moss pulls her little, her trick, and she comes back in, and he's like, who did that to you? And um, we had seen this already, because this movie overlaps the the timeline. Like, you see, you see the beginning of the scene that's coming next. Fuck it. If, when, if, if you know what I'm talking about if you've seen the movie. But you get this new context for it. And he says, who did this to you? And she goes, who did this? Dodd, Lenny. Dodd did this to me. If they just cut it at who did this? Because we've seen her say Dodd before. If they just cut it at who did this? I think it would have added this, like... Very, like, suspenseful, like, cut drop right there, but that's minor. I think the prostitute side plot thing, I get why they're doing it. I think that slows the movie down quite a bit from the pace that it has, which is still extremely tight and well paced, but I think that that's easily my least favorite chunk of the movie, and I don't know how much it actually adds overall
1: I feel like the only reason that's there, and maybe it's not even for this, is that that sets up that, like, the door slamming resets him. Okay. Because later in that carrie and Moss scene where she, like, chews him up, spits him out, goes back outside and comes back in, she slams the car door and that resets him again. I don't know if that's the reason for that, but that's a possible reason for that.
2: It's a different kind of uncomfortable than the rest of the movie uncomfortably has and just feels like a bit of a tonal shift. Um, to me that I've never enjoyed and and still didn't this time. But yeah, like I said, minor squabbles, just trying to not only, you know, jerk this movie off the entire time. What
1: what I'm most impressed by in that prostitute scene and like a couple of other scenes like where he wakes up next to Karrion Moss, he's so confident of the world around him when he doesn't remember anything. Mm. Like if you just woke up and just found a prostitute in your bathroom, he's just like, oh, I want you to leave now. Like he's not like, who are you? Like he is, he's able to sort of like process the world and know like who she is and sort of why she's there. And I guess he maybe thinks that they had sex or whatever, but he's just so calm the entire time. For somebody who's like, basically is Dory from Finding Nemo, he's so calm the entire movie.
2: It does lead to the incredibly good and emotional voiceover where he is burning her stuff. And he says, I must have done this a dozen times. It seems that I can't remember to forget you, which is really good. But I feel like they could have done that in a different way without introducing a new character and just kind of bogging it down. But other than that, minor, minor quibble.
0: I hear you. Yeah, I, I feel like they already sort of had that moment, too, to a degree when he's lying with carrie Ann Moss. He just has a great moment where he's talking about how, like, and I think this is mostly a paraphrase, but he's saying something like, time is supposed to heal all wounds and stuff, but I can't feel time, so how am I supposed to heal? And I pretty much got it right yeah. there. All the other stuff felt sort of like Inception foreshadowing to me, where it's like um, Christopher Nolan's sort of obsessed with, like you were saying last episode, Chris, like trinkets and little things... Like mementos, so to speak. I also wondered about that hooker scene because, like, how long did it take her to get to the hotel? By the time she showed up, he must have forgotten why he called <laughs> her. That was the only thing going through my mind, just, like, as far as how tight this whole thing has been, there was just sort of, he was playing fast and loose there. I think it's more symbolic, ultimately, than anything else, but nothing else in the movie is that sort of heavy-handed, I guess, or tries to really hit you over the head that hard. My only one complaint, and I understand why They're there because he explains how his memories, as soon as he starts to accumulate them, they just start to fade. I kind of got a little aggravated with how much this fades to black. Like, I understand it, but I almost just felt like maybe just a hard cut to black or just a jump cut to the next scene might have worked better in certain Times. Like, I'm not saying get rid of all the fade to Blacks or anything, but I just, it got to a point where I was, like, noticing it. I was like, oh, fade to Black, fade to Black. Again, like, it's not going to break the film for me or anything like
1: that. If we're nitpicking, like, that's probably the one thing.
2: Joey, do you have one one negative that you want to bring to the table?
1: It's not something that my thought, but, like, one of the people that I follow on Letterboxd, he didn't think that they did carry in Moss's character Real Justice, which I can sort of see. Like, I think she's good in it, but I don't know if her character is as well-written as Leonard or as Joey Pants.
2: I get the feeling that by the end, which is when we, fucking hell, the first times we see her, when you've rewatched it, I do almost feel like she feels bad about what she's done.
0: You think? Kind of? I get the sense. I think because she ends up helping him and kind of not apologizing but like you were saying earlier that there's so many looks in this movie that tell so much I got I got a different vibe off of her like maybe she was sort of sorry or she was gonna try and do the right thing more often and this was sort of like a step in that direction
1: I didn't take a ton of notes like I don't have anything like negative written down I feel like it's gonna be a problem I'm gonna run into a bunch on this it's just like I was just engrossed in the movie and I didn't want to really take notes of it I was just sort of like watching it enjoying it so sure. uh, I don't have anything written down I was like oh I didn't like this even though Maybe something happened? No, and again, it, it doesn't
2: take it out of being a five-star A-plus film to me. This is a top, top 50 film, in my opinion.
1: On Chris' list? It
2: might even be higher than that, honestly. Uh, I think I think I slotted it in somewhere near 25. A lot of Nolan I didn't put into my, uh, just for, for the, the home listening audience, I uh, I do keep a list of, as does Joey, of um, favorite films of all time that we constantly update through letterbox and things like that.
1: Yeah, I'm actively working on mine right now, and it's causing me grave panic.
2: Yeah. And I just feel like so much of Nolan is going to slam its way into this by the end of this project.
0: One thing I was really surprised about and um, is just like how well this really held up. Like I think this holds up better than Fight Club. Like, as much as I love Fight Club, I feel like this still feels more modern to me in in ways I don't understand it but it does and that's just the way I feel about it so yeah I just feel like it it really holds up And I said in
2: that first episode I was I'd been afraid of coming back to this because I was afraid of a Donnie Darko situation but no the exact opposite like it it did even more to me seeing it as an adult and if any of you are, are feeling the same way and like haven't seen it in a long time definitely revisit this it's so rewarding
1: I think one reason this holds up better than Fight Club and like I love both those movies is because Fight Club is also based on a book from 96 and Fight Club is such a commentary on current culture that it feels specific to an era. And I think that era can slip and slide a little bit, but here it's just like, this is just a story of a guy that had a terrible thing happen to him. He's trying to make sense of it. You know what I mean? It, it's not tied to the nineties or the early two thousands or whenever. Cause I mean, there's, there's some technology here, like, you know, the Polaroid camera and just telephones in general. But for the most part, like it could just sort of happen at any point. Two little things that I have about the cinematography of this. There was one guy, Mark Vargo, turned down shooting this movie because he said he was confused by the script. And so he has later come about and said that was uh, the wrong decision to make. He regrets turning this down. But the guy who did wind up shooting this was a guy, Wally Fister. He would go on to do uh, shoot six more movies... With Nolan, he would shoot The Dark Knight, Inception, Dark Knight Rises, Batman Begins, The Prestige, and Insomnia. So basically, the next six movies or whatever he's going to shoot. And then he went on to go direct the terrific, terrific movie, Transcendence, starring Johnny oh, Depp. Wow. No. The only movie he's ever directed was Transcendence, which, from what I remember, is a beautiful looking movie that just doesn't make any sense. I
0: don't, I call parts of it, like, I have it on mute when I'm, like, editing and stuff. I don't know that it. it's not that good looking to me. I'm surprised to learn that that guy made his bones as Nolan's cinematographer.
2: Yeah, well, you know what? Some DPs aren't necessarily, you know, great directors, so, you know, Deacons stayed in his fucking lane. More people should probably do that.
1: A few other things about casting. Ashley Judd, Famke Jansen, and Angelina Jolie were considered for Natalie for the carrie Moss oh, role.
2: Let me, let me process that. Who was the first one?
1: Ashley Judd. I can see all I can see that. Yeah? Yep. I don't Famke know. Famke Jansen would probably be good. I would like that the most. And Angelina I Jolie, I think, would maybe, but probably mm, A little not. too high profile, right? My gut
2: reaction was to say that Famke Janssen would be the most interesting there, but if you've ever seen the movie Bug, you know that the answer is probably Ashley Judd.
0: That was the first movie I saw when the new theater opened here at the mall. I love that movie. I wonder if Jolie was attached because Brad Pitt was early attached to this, and this was going to turn into like a Mr. and Mrs. Smith deal.
1: Dennis Leary turned down the role of Teddy, the Joey Pants role, which I think he could have done it. I could have seen that.
2: Yeah, I could see that too.
1: And then the only other thing that I have in, in the notes here is that Letter's looking at the map of the area. I think it's probably the map that he hangs up on his hotel room wall. There are two streets that aren't numbered. Like, every street is a number, except there's a Booth Street and a Lincoln Street, and they are both Blue Velvet references, apparently. There's Frank Booth from Blue Velvet, and there's also Lincoln Street, which is where Dorothy Valens lives in Blue Velvet. So, isn't it also John Wilkes Booth and Abraham Lincoln? It's
2: also just a Lincoln reference,
1: Hey man, IMDb is just saying it's a blue velvet references. It also might just be in the set, <laughs> a, a history thing. I'm just reading what I read, but that's all of the trivia. That's all the notes that I have about this. Chris, do you have anything else to say about Memento before we wrap up and then look forward to Insomnia?
2: We're gonna play a quick game based on stuff that we talked about before. Oh, let's recast. Let's say the three big roles. Let's even say the wife too. But it has to be with current Nolan regulars.
0: Uh-oh, Joey, it's the return of the recast game from Watch the Throne. Uh-oh, I'm having
1: flashbacks. I am recasting Lenny as Robert Pattinson.
2: No, they have to be Nolan regulars. Oh, is he in Dunkirk or something that I don't know about? I want to do it, like, if Nolan was making it today. So it's current, but also Nolan regulars? If Nolan was making it today, like, who from his brat oh. people would he cast? I feel like we might just accidentally be casting Inception here, though.
0: All right, I'm going with... Anne Hathaway as Carrie Anne Moss, going with Bane as Guy Pierce. Consistent Bane? Not as Bane, but
1: the what's the actor again? I'm sorry. Tom Hardy. You're having a Guy Pierce moment.
2: Now, I actually would really like to see Bane in this role, actually.
0: I <laughs> can't remember my wife. You gotta do Ellen Page as the wife. Who would be a good Joey Pants? like Killian Murphy? Oh, you know what? Oh, man, it's unfortunate. R.I.P. Robin Williams, because isn't he in Insomnia? He would have been great as the Joey Pants. Heath
1: Ledger could do the Guy Pearce role, too.
2: Oh, God, yeah. I'm going to say Killian Murphy as Joey Pants. This might be cheap, but I'm going to go with JGL as Lenny. Okay. I'm going to go with Ellen Page as Natalie. As Natalie?
1: You know who I want to do as Natalie? I want to do Jessica Chastain from Interstellar as Natalie.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. I forget she was in there. We gotta put Michael Caine somewhere
1: in here. Who can he be? Michael Caine can be the motel guy. He can be Tobolowsky. Oh, there we go. Oh, that's very good. You know what I do like is that like Christian Bale straight up in none of these.
2: Yeah, no. Not necessary. I'm, I can't think of who I would cast as the wife.
1: ScarJo from
0: Prestige?
2: Too high profile. But yeah, I don't, I don't hate that.
0: Who what about the other wife in the Prestige? Yeah. She's
1: really good. Either of those works for me. Rebecca Hall? Rebecca Hall. That's what I was thinking of. I'm cool with either of those. You know, you know who I want as the Tobolowski role. Another R.I.P. is David Bowie.
2: Ooh, yeah. Well, that was a fun thought experiment. Now we can never do that again because I guess we can do that for insomnia because that's still kind of pre Nolan verse.
1: If we're recasting it not in the Nolan verse, who would you do? Because I still think Robert Pattinson would be a great MD Guy Pierce role.
2: Oh, that's so much harder for me when like everything is and everyone is an option.
0: All I can think of now is Kristen Stewart as the Carrie Ann Moss and Robert Pattinson
1: as the Lenny, and them going <laughs> and Taylor Lautner as Joey Pants. I'm on board with that. Cool. A Twilight reboot. Mike, are there notes about Memento about Otney Mem before we uh, wrap up? I just want to say it's a great movie, and yeah, if you haven't seen it, definitely
0: check it out. Yeah, I loved it.
1: There is like a mastery, like we've been talking about. We can't really you can't really define about how well it's made. That words alone do not do it justice. Like, I think a lot of the movies that he's going to do are more straightforward narratively, which I think works. But here, there's like this is just like the best I think that this is ever going to be in terms of like this kind of storytelling that he's going to do.
2: Oh, here's something I wanted to bring up. This film was up for best original screenplay. However, it did not win. Um, but listen to this. So other than maybe one of these, I think this is a pretty incredible original screenplay year. Um, the Royal Tenenbaums. Uh Oddly. Monsters Ball. That's the one. And I think one that a lot of people would poo-poo just because it's like snooty British people, but I think it's a great movie, and the winner in this category, Gosford Park.
1: Which I've never seen. Oh, I have to see that too. I quite like that movie,
2: but four of those five are fucking fantastic.
1: And it was nominated also for Best Editing, but lost to Black Hawk Down, which...
0: Oh, I didn't like that movie very much. I mean, this movie just feels like so one-of-a-kind to me at this point. Like, yeah, it should have won all the Oscars. Yeah.
1: Well, we will be back next week for the film that came out two years from now, as of the time of Memento, in Insomnia, a movie that I've seen once. Has anybody seen it more than once or just once?
2: No, one time and I don't remember a thing.
1: Same here, just once. Cool. You know, we were talking this weekend, I hung out with both Mike and Chris, I was talking to Chris about it, was that The most amazing thing to me, and not amazing in like a congratulatory way, just like amazing and literally sort of almost unbelievable, is that he alternated Batman movies with other movies. That he was able, within building the world of Gotham and the Batman universe, that he was able to make the prestige and inception in between those movies. Like That is bananas to me. That, like, you have, like, a guy, you know, like, Peter Jackson does, like, all the Lord of the Rings or all the Hobbits. Like, that's all he's doing or whatever. But here he's like, no, 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 no. One for you, one for me. Or what, you know, it's just, like, crazy that he's able to sort of intercut. And that's also going to be cool for this that we're not doing re-Batman in a row. We're going to Batman, not Batman, Batman, not Batman, Batman.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, for us, like, for him, it was just we won't get sick of it. You know, I think that might have been a whole part of the plan. It's just how can I keep doing it without getting tired of it. Exactly.
2: Before we go away, I would just like to mention, because I I missed that this was up for um, editing. Briefly, this editor's career, The Peaks and Valleys here...
1: um, Was it? It's Dodie what? Dodie Dodds?
2: Yes. Went from being a sound editor, and then for her first movie, became the editor on Terminator 2 Judgment Day.
1: Okay. Whoa. Yeah.
2: Would go on to do just some other stuff. And then Memento, Matchstick Men, Boz Lerman's Australia, which it's a Lerman movie, so I'm sure it's edited. That's probably the best thing about it. Then End of Watch... Sabotage, Fury.
1: Oh, so she works at David Ayer. Okay.
2: And then took a big old dip and did um, Ben Hur and Power Rangers.
1: Well, Sabotage is also not good. So, I mean, that's not, you know, in the middle there. No, Sabotage is not good at all.
2: Yeah. But, man, what a weird career.
1: I've never looked at, like, an editor's career, though. I wonder if, unless you're tied to a very prolific director, there's probably a lot of peaks and valleys for all of them. Like, it's just like, hey, what can I do next? You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, I don't know if I've ever really looked at a, like, um, cinematographer, sure, but I don't think I've ever really done a deep dive into editors. Now I'm going to pay attention to that shit when a movie's really, really well edited.
1: Well, for all things Cinemakers, all of our Soderbergh movies, our Fetty Alvarez episode, and last week's episode of Following, you can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com, cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter. Go check out Chris's show now and again. Go check out Mike's show, Third Time's a Charm. Go check out Too Fast, Too Forever. We've got 18 shows, or maybe 19 by the time this comes out. Who knows? Go check out everything we've got at cageclub.me. Close to 600 episodes by now for you to listen to. Go enjoy them all. Just go listen to things. Enjoy movies. Email us. Maybe if you want, Cinemakers at case at me. Still don't know that we'll be able to read it before we end, but it'll be nice for us to read anyway, even if we don't read it on air. So,
2: you know what? If you're going to write in and tell us how Memento is not good, keep it, actually.
1: Sit on it, Potsy. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Chris Mattiello. And we'll see you next time on Cinemakers.